to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom, your host for this episode of the People's War Radio Show. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is something we want on our minds day and night. The piece you just heard is entitled, If There's Anybody Out There, by the late Hugh Masakela. As Brahu's 1968 track suggests, the solution to the shared oppression of African people globally is unified resistance. Today's show is entitled Black Power in the Great White North, and we will be examining the African liberation struggle in Canada. Though the countries are adjacent to each other, many Africans in the U.S. have very little knowledge of African life in Canada. I personally have family in Canada who live as far west as Vancouver and as far east as Toronto. In fact, I recently returned from visiting family in Calgary, Alberta, where my in-laws live. However, before I met my wife almost 20 years ago, I didn't know much about the Great White North. In all seriousness, what I generally understood about Canada revolved around sports and anti-slavery activity. In the 1700s, Nova Scotia, a province on Canada's eastern seaboard, was a destination for Africans who fought against the U.S. in the Revolutionary War. Some of the African revolutionaries, such as Osborne Anderson, that participated in the raid on Harper's Ferry, had come from Canada. There's a rich history of African liberation struggle in Canada. In fact, by 1922, there were 32 chapters of the Universal Negro Improvement Association in Canada. Malcolm X's parents met in Canada as Universal Negro Improvement Association organizers. However, this long history of struggle up north has been concealed by one simple fact. Canada is not the United States. But the truth is, Canada is the United States. Canada is so much the United States that the colonizers that founded the United States wrote a provision that would have allowed Canada to join the United States. Like the United States, South Africa, Israel, and Australia, Canada is a white settler colony that was built on the theft of indigenous land and the theft of the labor of African, Asian, and indigenous people. Until the 1960s, Africans, Asians, and Indians were largely prohibited from migrating to Canada. In 1967, Canada adopted what is called a point system that increased the immigration of African people from the Caribbean and the continent. Modern Canada has been built on the backs of Africans and other colonized people. Yet despite popular myths Africans in Canada are not much better than Africans in the U.S. Africans make up 3% of Canada, but 9% of Canada's prisons. On top of that, indigenous people are about 5% of Canada and 26% of its prisons. Africans in Canada have higher unemployment rates and lower income than the national average. And data shows that the longer Africans live in Canada, the harder life gets. Africans in Canada suffer from police brutality, 
and are two to three times more likely to die from COVID-19. What's the solution to these issues? The solution to these disparities is black power. As noted, our show today is entitled Black Power in the Great White North. And our guest is Jalali, also known as Norm Otis Richmond. Jalali was born in Louisiana and raised in Los Angeles. He moved to Canada in the late 1960s, where he became an early leader in the African liberation movement in Canada. Jalali has dedicated his life to revolutionary cultural work. He has worked with a host of musicians, such as Bob Marley, Abby Lincoln, Hugh Masekela, and Fela Kuti. Jalali is the host and producer of the Diasporic Music Show on Black Power 96 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Diasporic Music provides an all-African mix of music and politics that is, quote, made in the West, but not of the West. Diasporic Music airs every Sunday from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome, Comrade Jalali. Uhuru, how are you? I'm well, I'm well. How are you doing? Oh, as Sam Cooke would say, wonderful. Oh, man. Did you ever meet Sam Cooke while you were in uh, Los Angeles? I never met Sam Cooke. However, I used to see his manager. His manager was a guy by the name of J.A. Alexander, I think. And I used to see him at, there used to be a club in California, in Los Angeles called the California Club. And J.W. Alexander, pardon me, he was a singer and also he was a, I think he was a professional baseball player. But I used to see him, it was a California club. And he was a great dancer. At that time, he was a real older, he was an older guy, but he was in very good shape, had a head full of white hair and dressed impeccably. And he could, he could strut, he could dance. I used to see him, but I never met Sam, but I met his brother, L.C. Cook, and I was very close to L.C. Cook. There are many interviews with myself and L.C. on Uhuru Radio. Uhuru, Uhuru. That's an excellent way to begin our questions. You are from Los Angeles, not Toronto. Can you tell the listeners how you got to Toronto? Oh, well, first of all, I my mother tells me I was conceived in Los Angeles, and I was born in Arcadia, Louisiana. And this uh, another person that was born in 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 uh, Arcadia, Louisiana was uh, Betty Swan. Make me yours. And I still don't know whether or not I was introduced to her as she was supposedly my cousin, and. Um, whether or not that's true or not, I, I don't know. All I know is I met her in Arcadia, Louisiana in 1963. I spent the whole summer in Louisiana in 1963. In that area, we also had a, a Bobby Rush, another Louisiana man. He he says he's my cousin, too. About you, Bobby Rush, the great blues man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's pretty interesting. Uh, you, as well as a lot of different Africans, actually come from north and northwest uh, Louisiana. Well, I could go through Paul. Paul Mooney, uh, uh, what's his name? Johnny Cochran, uh, Paul Mooney, Bunchy Al Prentice, Bunchy Carter, the, the Black Panther Party, and also Masai Hewitt. Oh, Masai. Wow. Masai Hewitt was the Minister of Education for the Black Panther. So can you tell us how you got to Canada? What had happened was I was a part of the uh, student movement in Los Angeles. I went to Los Angeles City College and Los Angeles City College at that particular time, we had a student union. And at that particular time, some of the people that were going to Los Angeles City College were uh, uh, Sagidi Abdullah. Sabidi Abdullah, he was the person who wrote and produced the SOS band, Baby Take Your Time, Do It Right. He was going there. Al Prentice uh, Bunchy Carter, uh, who became the Minister of Defense for the Black Panther Party, he was going there at that particular time. And also there was a young man by the name of Fred Goray, who went to Detroit and became Masai Kariga Kenyatta. And he was a big D- DJ on a radio station in, in Detroit. And he was a member of the Shrine of the Black Madonna, Reverend Jeremoji or Reverend Clay, who Malcolm X talks about on the message to grassroots. And I went to LACC and I was involved in the movement. I was drafted and I basically took the position that if I got drafted, I was going to go to, uh, I was going to go to jail and I was not going to run to Canada. I was not going to do this. I wasn't going to do that. I was going to go, go to jail. And the elders one of the elders being Masai, who was minister, like who became the minister of uh, education for the Black Panther Party. They basically had a meeting and decided on my behalf that they didn't want me to go to prison. So they basically said, you should leave the country like you're 20 years old, uh, almost turning 21. And our, it is our position that you should leave. You know, you can go to Cuba, you can go to Africa, you go to Canada, you can do this, you can do that. And basically I was voted 
by the elders to uh, to get out of the country. They said, don't go. It's not worth going to prison. You know, uh, too young. You can learn a lot. You know, I was part of a group called the, the Self-Determination Committee, and we sued the United States government. We said that we were colonial subjects. This is 1966, 1967. That we sued the government and said that we were colonial subjects and we shouldn't fight in the draft. We shouldn't pay taxes. We should withdraw our, all of our support. It was a man who was head of that organization. His name was Robert Brock. Chairman O'Malley issued telling new uh, Robert Brock personally, as, as they say. I was on trial with another young man who was part of another national was part of a nationalist group. They took the position that their uh, mother was sick, so therefore I was going to take all of the weight. <laughs> they set basically set me up. So I was I was convicted, uh, given five years uh, prison and five thousand dollar fine. So as they say, uh, Marcus Garvey would say, I got into the whirlwind and ended up in uh, Toronto, Canada. So upon entering Canada, what did you find were the general conditions of African life in Toronto and throughout Canada? Well, when I came to Canada was in 19, I stayed in Canada in 1967 for about a year. First of all, there were only, at that particular time, maybe only 10,000 Africans, maybe maybe five, 10,000, no more than 20,000 Africans in Toronto at that particular time. And I remember I came to a place called Yorkville. Yorkville was like the, like the hippie area. And the first African I saw was a brother. And I spoke to him and he was mute. So, you know, being born in, in Los Angeles, and I mean, being, yeah, being born in Los Angeles and spending time in the South, you know, African people, we speak to one another. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, uh, when I saw the first brother I saw, I saw him. He looked at me like I had Ebola or, you know, or, uh, epi- uh, you know, I, I was a leper or something. So that really kind of shook me up. And I met some, uh, uh, I met a group of people. I don't know if they were hippies, but they had, uh, it was three or four of them. I remember their names, but I don't want to go into their names because I really lost touch with them. It was a bunch of uh, young white dudes and there was one First Nations woman with them, a young First Nations woman. And they put me up, and then I met the uh, Quakers. You know, what this, you know, you had to go see the Quakers, and the Quakers had the Underground Railroad, and the uh, 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 Quakers put me in contact with uh, some progressive Jewish folks, some anti-Zionist Jewish folks, and uh, they gave me a little place to stay. And uh, I had a little uh, 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 basement apartment, and they looked after me for a little while, and then I started mingling with the African community, and I met a young man by the name of Jose Garcia, who's still in the land of the living. And there was another brother from the United States. I hooked up with him. And all of these guys were older than me. And Jose Garcia was from uh, the Dominican Republic and Aruba. Or he was, uh, he's a strange brother. When I say brother, when I say a strange brother, Jose could speak English, French, Spanish, Dutch, and uh, a language called Papiamento. Jose could speak about six or seven languages. And uh, we started the group called the Afro-American Progressive Association. And a lot of Caribbean people were upset because they said we were using the term uh, Afro-American and they were West Indians. We took the term Afro-American from Malcolm X. And that Malcolm X says that, you know, Afro-Americans were people from Canada all the way to Chile. But we found out later that Carlos Cooks, Carlos Cooks was from the Dominican Republic, but I think his people were from St. Croix or uh, from from the Caribbean. But anyway, Carlos Cooks was the person who took over the Garvey movement after Marcus Garvey. And he started the African Nationalist Pioneer Movement. And when he used the term Afro-American, it meant all of the Africans that were uh, in the Western Hemisphere. And, you know, and he used African, Afro-American and black, you know. So we basically said that we would come in. We basically were using the term African or African-American to include all the black people in from the Western Hemisphere. Thanks for that. Generally, when people think about Canada, they oftentimes don't talk about the colonial violence that Africans uh, have experienced uh, in Canada. Uh, are there some specific examples in colonial violence that you can uh, think of that Africans have experienced in Canada and Africans have campaigned against? Well, first of all, they they uh, they, 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 they were lynchings in Canada, and historically, you know, Canada was supposedly the 
a haven for runaway, runaway enslaved Africans. However, let's go back to 1953. There was a young man by the name of Garfield Belfont. And Garfield Belfont was 14 years old. He was killed by the police in 1953. Uh, they were, they had no guns or anything, but they were supposedly robbing a pharmacy or something right on this, on the street called College Street. But Garfield Belfont was 14 or 13 or 14. And anyway, everybody says that Garfield Belfont was real. He was like, he was like a Fred Hampton. I mean, he was leading people that he was leading were older than him. His brother, John Belfont was a founding member of the Afro-American Progressive Association. And I knew Garfield's uh, mother, Mrs. Belfont, John Belfont. John Belfont is still in, in, in the land of the living. And, uh, well, Garfield, that, that, that started, uh, well, let's just, let's just use that as, as a starting point. Garfield Belfont was killed by the police, 1953. Then you had, a uh, a young man by the name of Buddy Evans, uh, Buddy Evans was from Nova Scotia. He was in after I was joined, he was killed by the police. Then people started organizing around the police situation in an organization called the Black Action Defense Committee, Bad C, Black Action Defense Committee, which was founded by people like uh, Charles Roach. He was a lawyer. He's no longer in the land of the living. Uh, one of the other leaders of the Black Action Defense Committee was a brother by the name of Dudley Laws. He was born in, 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 in Jamaica, but he went to England. Then he came to Canada. Uh, you had a woman by the name of Sharona Hall. She was uh, a sister that was born in, uh, she was born in Jamaica. She had a lot of ties with the liberation movements in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe and so on and so forth. And you had another brother by the name of Lennox Farrow. He was another Trinidadian brother. He was a part of that group. Brother by the name of Owen Leach. He changed his name to Sankara. He was a part of that. Another brother, Mitchell Holder. It was a whole group of people from uh, from the Western Hemisphere that started this Black Action Defense Committee. And they basically made the police their issue. The Black Panthers came here. Uh, I don't think they, were, they, 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 they ever had a chapter. But, uh, you know, you had many of the formations that took that took place in the United States. That allows us to think about nowadays. There have been uh, George Floyd protests in every Canadian province and territory, including a march of about 4,000 people in Toronto. What more can you tell us about the African response to the death of George Floyd in Canada? I think that the the death of George Floyd in, in, in its relationship to Canada, I think that Canada basically took the same position that the world took because, I mean, it was such a despicable display of uh, police bestiality and that the people in, in, in Canada, Africans as well as uh, all white Canadians, and I, mean, I think people all Belgian all over the world went off, went off because it was uh, it was. I guess it had, it had a lot to do with, I guess, the fact that we were all, we were all contained. You know, we we're all under, under lockdown all around the world. And there was no way you, you could not see what happened. And what happened to that brother was so glaring. I think it just, it, it, it hit a chord with, uh, with everyone and African people, uh, pan-Africanism or African internationalism is, uh, uh, is in the air right now, you know, so. Thanks for that. You referenced the lockdown in reference to the COVID-19 pandemic, or as we in the who are moving called the colonial virus. Canada has been praised by liberal sectors of society for some of the steps it has taken to prevent the spread of COVID-19. However, Africans and other colonized people in Canada have rates at least three times that of whites. African neighborhoods in Toronto have been the hardest hit. Can you explain some of the impact COVID-19 has had on Africans in Toronto and throughout Canada? Black people and other people of color make up 83% of the reported COVID-19 cases in Toronto. 21% of the reported cases af affect Black people who make up only 9% of the city's overall population. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our show today is entitled Black Power in the Great White North. And our guest today is Norman Jalali Richmond, an African liberation movement leader from Toronto, Canada, and the host of Diasporic Music on Black Power 96.3. So next question. Earlier, you were talking about an organization that you founded, the Afro-American Progressive Association, one of the first black power groups in Canada. 
as well, you also helped found yes, sir. and lead the Biko Rodney Malcolm Coalition. What is the history of African liberation in Canada? Oh, first of all, you had African people. I can't go through a whole, a whole, uh, let me say that, you know, you had uh, 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 Mary Ann Shad had a newspaper in, in, in Canada years and years ago. And also Henry Bibb had a newspaper in Canada. I think both of them, well, I think uh, Henry Bibb came out of the United States and they crossed over into Canada. Both of them started newspapers and they had a, I guess, a professional rivalry. And I think, uh, I believe that Bibb was a little bit more nationalistic than uh uh, than 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 Marianne Shad, Marianne Shad Carey, and uh, of course you had uh, the Universal Negro Improvement Af- uh, Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League. Uh, they started in Canada in 1921, I believe. I my 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 dates might be off, and they had the Universal. They had a, a, a Liberty Hall here on a street called College Street. And uh, Marcus Garvey came here many, many, many times. And I think the last meeting that he had was in 1937. He came to Canada and they had a school up here. And they, tra- they trained a lot of people uh, who went on to, you know, lead the Garvey movement around, uh, you know, around the, uh, 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 around, around the world. But, uh, you know, the Garvey movement, Garvey came up here many, many, many years. I remember in 1937, I have a, I had a, a, a brother by the name of uh, uh, Leonard Oscar Johnston. He was uh, born and raised in Canada, and he was he 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 used to be a, a a porter, railroad porter, and he saved his money and started a bookstore called the Third World Bookstore. And third world books, third world books and crafts. He and his wife Gwen Johnston had the bookstore, and he was a member of the uh, Communist Party. And he quit the Communist Party, and he joined the Afro American Progressive Association. And he, me, and him used to argue over uh, Garvey versus uh, uh, Du Bois. Lenny, Lenny was one of what was like I say he was one of. One of, my, one of my mentors. And one of the things that you're very into, uh, you're really a pioneer in, is African music. A lot of people yes, know the song Redemption Song uh, by Bob Marley, where, where he says, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our mind. Well, that right. actually, that line actually comes from a speech given by Marcus Garvey at Menelik Hall. In Nova Scotia, exactly, where he says, we're going to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery. Mind is your only ruler sovereign. The man who is not able to develop and use his mind is bound to be slave to the other man who uses his mind. Now, Malcolm's parents also met in Canada. Can you give us a little bit more uh, insight on that? (laughs) I'm laughing because Louise Little, Louise Little uh, Langdon, that's Malcolm X, that was Malcolm X's mother. And Malcolm X's mother was born in a place called La Digue, uh, Grenada, which was the home of uh, Maurice Bishop in the uh, New Jew movement. Maurice Bishop, uh, Bernard Cord, and Selwyn Strong and I forgot all, all Jacqueline Kraft. I was she was killed with Morris Bishop. But anyway, Malcolm's mother came 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 to Nova Scotia in woo, many 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 years ago. She came to Nova Scotia, and you know they had a Caribbean community there, and they were worried about her. They did not want her to marry a Euro uh, a Euro uh, person. So they sent her to Montreal. <laughs> and when she was in Montreal, she was at Marcus Garvey meeting and she met Earl Little, Malcolm X's father. And they were, uh, I think they were, ma- oh, they were married in Montreal. And uh, 
came back to, uh, you know, they lived all over Omaha, Nebraska, blah, 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 Michigan, and so on and so forth. But, yeah, they actually uh, they actually met in uh, at a UNIA convention in, 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 uh, in, in Montreal, Quebec. Yeah. As noted, I have in-laws in Canada from Vancouver to Calgary to Toronto, you know, I think probably some in between. I've noticed that Africans in Canada often hold strong connections with the countries they come from. People might call themselves Jamaicans, Trinidadians, Haitians, etc. But why is it important for Africans in Canada to embrace a global African identity as they struggle to overturn the issues plaguing black people in Canada? I have a problem with that because I... When I say I have a problem with that, because I have been conscious of Africa since I was 14 years old. When I was 14 years old, I never will forget as long as I live, they killed Patrice Lumumba. Well, I shouldn't say they killed Patrice Lumumba. They killed Patrice Lumumba, Joseph Okito, and Maurice Impolo. I remember I, those those three names of burning my memory, and I remember I was had gone to free. This was the first I was just going to school there, and I had just left middle school or junior high school as we called it back then, and there was a young man by the name of Charles Wright, and Charles Wright was a guy who had he had an automobile, he had a uh, he had all of the girls. He was one of the best dressed people. And he was a part of Al Prentice Bunchy's car that had a set of the street organization. In, there were street organizations in Los Angeles. It was the Slawsons who were in Fremont. And then the businessmen were at Jefferson High School. And the gladiators were, were at, at, at Manual Arts, uh, Manual Arts uh, uh, High School. And uh, Bunchy Carter had a set of Slawsons called the Renegade Slawsons. And uh, Charles Wright was a part of Bunchy Carter's uh, Renegade Slossons. And I never will forget, as long as I live, he was making fun of the name of Africans, of the Africans that had got killed. Oh, Kasabubu, Kasabubu. And he was making fun of the names. And there was a brother from the Nation of Islam. And, you know, when Charles was going through his thing, the brother from the Nation of Islam uh, saw me and called me. Says, he says, "Come over here, young brother." He says, "He says, he says that Negro. What you think about what that Negro is saying?" I said, it "Don't make no sense to me. I don't know. I don't know who Cassie was Cassie Vuvu, but I don't know what he, this Cassie Boo stuff." He said, well, "Would you like to hear the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad?" I was fourteen. I just might have been 13, getting ready to turn, turn 14, because uh, I was born in March, and Lumumba was killed in uh, January 17th, 1961. And anyway, he says, all right, would you like to hear the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad? And uh, 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 my thing was, uh, uh, I had uh, relatives that were in the Nation of Islam, but I, didn't, I, I really didn't know them at that particular time. I said, of course, let me go here. What, uh, who, 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 the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And when I went to the mosque, there was a brother by the name of uh, John Shabazz. He's, he's still in the land of the living. I think it's, he was a great son, just like Malcolm. I think he was out of St. Louis. And uh, I was captivated. I never joined the Nation of Islam, but I, I definitely became a big, 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 big sympathizer. And he was talking about the death of Lumumba and breaking down Africa, so on and so forth. In keeping with that, what do you think that activists nowadays in Canada could learn from uh, that period? What do you think they could learn from African internationalism and really a global African identity? I think that they could, the first thing is, 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 is the question of, of, of uh, identity, I think, is, is, is very important because I think that I'm not going to tell anybody that they can't identify what, where if you were born in Antigua, if you were born in in uh, in, in, in in Zanzibar, if you want to, you know, hold on to, you know, your 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 set, that's fine. 
but we're still all African people, you know. And uh, uh, African internationalism makes sense to me because uh, uh, we are an identity. We are we are Africans, and we should unite. Uh, and I think we are we are the uh, when I say we, I mean we as a people. We are the most oppressed. I think Ho Chi Minh, the great leader of the Vietnamese Revolution, said that you know the African Africans were the most oppressed people in the world. And it has nothing to do with melanin or being biologically superior to anybody. But objectively, our material conditions put us, pardon me, in, in a situation where we are in a position to to lead a worldwide African uh, revolution against capitalism leading to uh, socialism. <laughs> like I said, when I go... <laughs> To visit my family, you know, I'll see Trinidadian Association and Guyanese Association and Antiguan Association. And there might be cultural things through which people come together, Carafest or something like that. But when an African is killed by the police, if the African is from Somalia or Sudan or something, then someone might say, wow, you know, that sucks what happened to that Sudanese kid, they need to take better care of their community, as opposed to understanding that these are all universal conditions that Africans share, not just in Canada, uh, not just in Toronto, too, because that's something they'll try to say, but 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 a universal condition uh, all around the world. So let's uh, move into some some other interests of yours. Revolutionary culture, because I know that. That was one of the focuses of the uh, Beko Rodney Malcolm coalition that you led was the role of revolutionary culture. What role has revolutionary culture played in the struggle for African liberation internationally and in Canada? The, the, the Beko Rodney Malcolm coalition was started by uh, people from North America, the Caribbean and Africa, specifically South Africa. And uh, some of the people in the, in the, uh, the, the South African brother by the name of Gerald Pacobi, he was in the, uh, uh, the Black Consciousness Movement. Yes, yeah. It was Biko, 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 uh, Biko uh, Stephen Biko's group. And uh, we took the position that we were African people, and we use the term. We use the term Biko Rodney Malcolm Coalition because uh, Biko was from South Africa. Walter Rodney was from Guyana, and Malcolm, of course, was uh, from the United States with uh, you know Georgia and uh, Grenadian roots. So we basically tried to use those three people. To bring us together, you know, when I say bring us together, that was, uh, we always had the universal, Carlos Cooks, the, you know, the, the uh, and let me say, I, well, I should, I, well, I, I should say that I love Carlos Cooks, but Carlos Cooks was an anti-communist. And uh, we had, uh, you know, Carlos had a big problem with, Carlos, brother Cooks had a big problem with Castro. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I have been accused of by a lot of my black nationalist friends, and I really loved uh, Fidel Raul and uh, Ernesto Che Guevara. And Ernesto Che Guevara, was roots are Argentinian, and I think his daddy was, a, was an Irishman. But... Uh, you know, I was I was held up uh, uh, Che Guevara. I, I held up uh, Fidel and, and Raul uh, because of their practice in terms of what what they what they what they they actually went to. You know, Ernesto Che Guevara actually went to the Congo and uh, and fought. You know what I mean? And uh, uh, so, you know, I never bought that. Uh, uh, that particular lie. And I think I always, there's one thing that I united with, united and continue to unite with Huey P. Newton on, that blackness is 
necessary, very necessary, but it is not sufficient. Because Mobutu, uh, he had a lot of melanin. He was black and he had about 50 wives and, uh, you know, he made everybody change their name. He had a whole Africanization program. He made everybody change their name, wear African clothes, but he was in bed with a he was in bed with, with, with U.S. imperialism, Belgium imperialism, and the World Bank. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our show today is entitled Black Power in the Great White North, and our guest today is Norman Jalali Richmond, an African liberation movement leader from Toronto, Canada, and the host of Diasporic Music on Black Power 96.3. Jalali, as the host of Diasporic Music, what can you tell us about the role of revolutionary culture in the African liberation struggle? I think the role of culture is very, very, very important, but I don't think that the cultural workers are, have the, well, I shouldn't say have, don't have the final say, but I think the political line is the most Im- Im- important thing. I think, you know, cultural workers are forced to support the struggle now. Like, I personally think that uh, Beyonce is a great artist, and uh, I actually think she can act. I actually think she can sing, but she is not the leader of the African Revolution, and especially working with Disney. Uh, you know, I think Disney, Disney, Disney is part of, is not a part of the problem. Disney is the problem. But when we talk about other cultural workers like a uh, Max Roach or an Aminata Museka who was married to Max Roach and she was uh, known at one time as Abby Lincoln, uh, you know, artists like that have always uh, supported the, the, the African liberation movement. Uh, you know, Max Roach did a thing called We Insist Freedom Now Sweet. I think that was recorded in uh, ooh, 1959, 1960, banned by all, you know, that the, those records and Lena Horne's record and Randy Weston's records from 1964, all of that stuff was banned in South Africa and all of Paul Robeson's stuff. Uh, because, you know, you can, uh, the music and the, uh, uh, films and poetry it is, it, it, it was, it, it was, it, as to, it's even more pronounced today with social media, but back then, you know, the, 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 uh, the music and the culture, uh, was very powerful and has always been powerful, but Aminata Museka, Max Roach, people like Randy Weston. Later on, you know, you had uh, uh, Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, uh, you know, the I-3s, you know, the whole reggae situation. Then you had the hip-hop. You know, the the beginning of hip-hop was, uh, uh, was, well, you know, no matter what people might think of uh, uh, NWA, they scared the police to death, you know. (laughs) And, you know, you also had a lot of conscious, tons of conscious, uh, conscious hip hop artists and they were, they never got the airplay, but you know, and then just the skill, like, you know, someone like Rakim, you know, you got two, two sides of culture. You have the content and the form, you know, and the form of, 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 of black music, uh, listening to Mahalia Jackson sing just the, 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 uh, uh, form, the way she sings is so beautiful. But, you know, Mahalia Jackson was Martin Luther King's musical lieutenant. You know, Bob Marley, uh, Fela Kuti was like, a, a, a mu- could be called a musical lieutenant of uh, President Thomas Ankara of, 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 of Burkina Faso. And Walter Rodney could be, uh, uh, Bob Marley was a musical lieutenant of, uh, Walter Rodney and, and, and Walter Rodney and Bob Marley can be united when it comes to the cultural question. So uh, you offered some pretty solid criticism of contemporary uh, cultural workers. What do you think that young African cultural workers can learn from 
the people of the generation that you came up in? Well, first of all, I wanted to say that it's very difficult in that to be in that particular in that situation because first of all, you want to be able to earn a living, and I'm not going to tell anybody uh, uh, what they can and they can't do in terms of of, of, of the art. But if you're committed to you know you know to, to to the struggle, well, Jane Cortez used to tell me, if you're an artist, you have to have three or four or five or six or seven different things you do in order to generate income if you want to be independent. Uh, but if you're going to be, uh, uh, you know, in the music business, you have to, you know, uh, probably probably make those those, those uh, compromises. But, you know, you know, try to find a way to, uh, you know, supplement your income. Uh, you know, you might learn how to uh, 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 run a board or something, you know, uh, you might, you know, might might be able to earn a, earn, earn a living. Being a publicist, you might be able to earn a living. Uh, uh, having 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 skills where you can, you know, get, supplement your income, so you won't have to uh, completely sell out. You know, but you got to make some money. Unfortunately, under capitalism. Uhuru, 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 and uh, I hear you loud and clear. So, as a revolutionary cultural worker, what is the way forward for you? What's the way forward for us? Uh, to keep on trucking, to keep on doing doing uh, 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 what we what we are doing. I mean, I think uh, us. I think uh, you know the hip hop artist Boots Riley uh, did a film. Boots Riley. Uh, 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 Boots Riley. Uh, he considers himself a communist, and he said that on. Uh, he said that on national TV. And uh, he's got films and he's won all kind, kind of awards. You know, we have Dead Prayers. I think they're, do, they're, they're, doing, they're doing great work. And it's not just the brothers, but the sisters. You know, I can give you, you there's all kind of examples of uh, culture workers that are, that are continuing to, uh, to put the message out. And like I say, uh, figuring out a way how to, 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 to uh, pay your mortgage and, and look after, send your kids to school. And be a revolutionary. If you can walk that tightrope, that's 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 the way we have to go, you know. Because we definitely got to. Uh, we definitely need uh, 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 to to our, our children need political education even more than we we need education, and especially political education. But I'm not telling people to drop out of school and that kind of stuff. I'm not. I'm not arguing that. <laughs> Well, uh, I did it. one fo- one <laughs> final question. About a decade ago, you circulated a petition. Uh, the petition was for your radio show out of Toronto to gain national syndication. Uh, this is my first sort of uh, yes, uh, endeavor uh, into um, into radio. What's some things that? Uh, what role do you think that a revolutionary uh, African internationalist radio plays in the struggle? I think it's very important because uh, Africans uh, uh, radio is is very very important, and I think that uh, uh, on the African continent, you know, people are listening to radio on their cell phones and stuff. You know, um, it's not like uh, you don't have to have a, 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 a in North America. We have you know radio stations which I think are. I'm an older person, and I have a son who doesn't listen to radio. He listens; everything is on his phone, and I think that's the way the way of the world. In Uhuru Radio or Black Power ninety six, we're heard all over the world, and I think the role of uh, uh, of revolutionary radio is to uh, uh, go go all around the world. You know, you know, let's let's. Take Black Power '96 to Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Let's take Dar es Salaam, or let's take uh, uh, Black Power '96 to uh, uh, Benin and uh, Haiti, Georgetown, Guyana, and uh, you know, let's take it to Ecuador. Let's take it to ha- Halifax, Nova Scotia, and uh, 
Pacific yeah, who, Island. Who, who, thanks know? for that, that because that's how I see uh, it. Amakar Cabral actually spoke towards the revolutionary use of radio to um, uh, to, to to organize people over there in uh, Guinea-Bissau and uh, Cape Verde uh, as well. So so we uh, as well. Um, uh, some of the the different shows that circulated through the African radios, uh, uh, many of the revolutionaries suggested, um, you know, play play uh, play played a very important role. We know people like uh, Robert F. Williams and his Radio Free Dixie and other things like that. So so yeah, I just really want to uh, salute you. I want to salute uh, you. Could I say well, could I say one last thing that Amir Cabral. Speaking in 1965 in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, I guess you would say he sent a shout out to the Africans in Los Angeles, California, during the Watts Rebellion, saying that the he was speaking in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania at a at a meeting of the uh, uh, the liberation movements, the uh, uh, Frelimo. I don't know if that's the acronym yeah, the, 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 for yeah the the uh, the, the Mozambique you, 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 uh, Liberation Front or something like that. No, that that that, that was Mozambique. That was that was that's that's Mozambique. Yeah, for Lima. That's uh that's that's uh, that's uh, Mozambique. For Limo, then for, oh for Limo, I'm sorry. And then Angola was MPLA, and uh, the PIGC. They were having a conference. All the Portuguese colonies, and they were they were they were meeting in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. He sent a shout out to. Uh, to the people who are rumbling in Los yeah, Angeles, yeah, who, California. Who, yeah. Because just like Minnesota, uh, Los Angeles, Detroit, and so many other uh, places here in the belly of the beast, you know, uh, uh, we are, we know the Africans up here in North America are central to uh, re- the revolutionary struggle and the Af- and the liberation of African people uh, everywhere. Uh, you understood that, you know, Garvey understands that. Uh, that's what uh, Chairman O'Malley Ashitella uh, teaches us as well. So um, I'd like to really just once again thank you, salute you uh, for all your work, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our show today is entitled Black Power in the Great White North, and our guest today is Norman Jalali Richmond, an African liberation movement leader, from Toronto, Canada, and the host of Diasporic Music on Black Power 96.3. Uhuru, this is Michelle Rowe Odom, Matsumela's partner. As Matsumela noted earlier, I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, where my parents migrated to in the 1970s from Antigua and Jamaica by the way of England. I would like to introduce to you a very special treat. Just weeks before he was assassinated, Malcolm X completed an interview in Toronto, Canada on January 5th, 1965. Archival recordings of that interview have recently reemerged, and I would like to share it with you. In this interview, Malcolm X explains his ideological shifts, his recent Hajj to Mecca, and the political program of the Organization of Afro-American Unity. I hope you take as much from this historic clip as I have. Let's continue to struggle for African self-determination, in Canada, the Caribbean, the U.S., Africa, and everywhere African people are. Uhuru. Uh, I don't advocate any kind of hate. There's a lot of talk that sounds very much like it. No, I think that the guilt complex of the American white man is so profound until when you begin to analyze the real condition of the black man in America, instead of the American white man eliminating the causes that create that condition, he tries to cover it up by accusing his accusers of teaching hate, but actually they're just exposing him for being responsible for what exists. Uh, I don't in any way encourage black people to go out and initiate acts of aggression indiscriminately against whites, but I do believe that the black man in the United States and any human being anywhere is well within his right to do whatever is necessary by any means necessary to protect his life and property, especially in a in a country where the federal government itself has proven that it is either uh, unable or unwilling to protect the lives and property of those human beings. Just before Pierre takes it, you've got a pretty good fighter and the world's heavyweight champion lined up with you to help out. Yes, Pierre. (laughs) Are you still a Muslim yourself? Oh, yes. I'm a Muslim. I believe in the religion of Islam, which believes in brotherhood, complete brotherhood of all people. But at the same time that I believe in this brotherhood, I don't believe 
enforcing my uh, desire for brotherhood upon those who aren't willing to accept it. Of course, I think the Christians would say that they also believed in brotherhood. What did you say to that? I'd say they believe in it, but don't practice it. <laughs> well, that'd be a pretty good answer. <laughs> Sir, when the uh, muezzin goes up in the minaret twice a day, he cries to the world, there is but one God, and he is Allah. Do you deny that there is a Christian God? Uh, the muezzin does this five times a day. Five times, and I only heard him twice. Well, you were fortunate to hear him twice. <laughs> but he does this five times a day, and the same God that he says uh, that he expresses the existence of is the God that the Christians profess to believe in themselves, and the God that the Jews believe in, one God, the creator of the universe. The Muslims believe in the God that created the universe, and I think the Christians do, and the Jews do. Now, as long as all of them are talking about the creator, uh, the Jews may call him Jehovah, and Christians may have another name for him. Those who are Arabic-speaking refer to him as Allah. Well, we believe in the same God. Now, when you went to Mecca, this is a very sacred and forbidden city. I tried to get to Mecca myself and certainly didn't make it, uh, not being a Muslim. But how would they accept you as one? You're an American. There are few American Muslims. This is true. And by being an American and not having uh, any, not being able to speak the Arabic language, I did strike a snag, a very serious snag. But I was fortunate. Uh, to have been pretty well known by the officials in Arabia, and they knew too that I had uh, accepted Orthodox Islam. It had been highly publicized in the paper, and I became a guest of the state. I was a guest of who? Of Prince Faisal, the present King Faisal. Faisal, and they made it possible for me to go before the committee, Hajj committee or Hajj court, who examines you and and asks you questions about your belief. And if you pass it, then you are okay to go to Mecca. But it's you would true. have to have a translator then. Uh, oh, I had one. Then we realizing that our problem in America, that we are black Americans, and we have a problem that goes beyond religion. We formed a group known as the Organization of Afro-American Unity. And the objective of this organization, it's non-religious, number one. Any Negro can belong to it. And the objective of, the, of that organization is to uh, bring about a condition that will guarantee respect and recognition of the 22 million black Americans as human beings. We feel that the problem, number one, of the black man in America is beyond America's ability to solve. It's a human problem, not an American problem or a Negro problem. And as a human problem or a world problem, we feel that it should be taken out of the jurisdiction of the United States government and the United States courts and taken into the United Nations in the same manner that the problems of the black man in South Africa, Angola, and other parts of the world, and even the way they're trying to bring the problems of the Jews in Russia into the United Nations because of violation of human rights. We believe that our problem is one not a violation of civil rights, but a violation of human rights. Not only are we denied the right to be a citizen in the United States, we're denied the right to be a human being. Thank you. The People's War Radio Show is produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human rights and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, health care, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit APEDF.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on WUBP.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with the Black Ankh Project, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guest, Norman Jalali Richmond, for joining us today. We would also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in.